VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll be discussing important wins for Wolves, Luton, Crystal Palace and a goal fest victory for Aston Villa against Brighton. We'll also be looking at the return of the Women's Super League and joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we've got two of the finest football writers around, Alison Rudd and Molly Hudson, and a former footballer who was so good that he once won two Football League trophies without playing in either final. It's Gregor Robertson. <laughs> I'm going to have to start making these up, I reckon, by the end of the season. Probably in like two weeks' time. Your career, was, your career <laughs> was pretty varied and you played for quite a lot of clubs, but I don't think we're going to make it to December. Um, Molly, lovely to see you. In the flesh, in person. Last time we were speaking, you were, I think, overlooking Sydney Harbour Bridge with maybe a little little drink at the end of the Women's World Cup to celebrate, and I made you come on the podcast. And here you are in a grimy, uh, windowless studio in the News UK buildings. This is better, right? I spent a month at a Mercure that wasn't <laughs> as nice as it sounded, so I think we'll take News UK, very fancy staircase. Yeah, I yeah. said to Gregor, walking up here might be the poshest thing I've ever stood on. There you go. <laughs> so look, we've gone up in the world. We've quite literally gone up in the world because we came up a floor as well. So yeah, beautiful. Uh, moving on from Australia and News UK studios to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium because uh, it was the first game, first big game that we're going to have to talk about. End-to-end action, red cards, own goals, and of course, refereeing cock-ups. Tottenham 2, Liverpool 1. And Alison Rudd, you've got an analogy for us. This is a bar analogy. Yeah. It doesn't an- analogize the whole game. Yeah. Okay. Is that a word? Well, it is now. Yeah, okay. It is now. Okay, okay good. Once Appreciate it appears it. on the game podcast, it's a word. It's in the OED now. Was yeah. Three <laughs> seconds ago. They listen, you know, assiduously to this. Um, so, it is decided that lollipop ladies <laughs> had their day. Right been a few incidents a few lorries going a bit too fast past schools and the parents decide we want automated crossings for our children to get to school we don't want a lady with a stick in the middle of the road so what do they do they build an automated school crossing system but but the people they put in the booths to monitor it are a group of pensioners who wanted to be involved in school crossings in the first place because they wanted to be outdoors, they wanted to meet people, they loved children and they cared for children's safety. But they're now in front of computer screens and having to concentrate really hard when they've just been to the WI cake sale and they're very busy <laughs> and it doesn't work and a poor little kitty gets maimed. And that is exactly what has happened with VAR because let's remember the referees didn't want it, 
this isn't a referee-led revolution in automated refereeing. It was the clubs and the authorities who wanted it. And for some bizarre reason, they decided to put your bog-standard referees in charge of what is a complicated system that requires quick reaction and no emotion whatsoever. And they've put buddies, all the buddies together in a room and they're friends with the on-field referee, they're friends with each other. It doesn't work. And that whole system, and I've said it all along and this just illustrates it, has to be recast completely. So I presume in your analogy, the WI cake sale is the uh, refereeing trip in the UAE that uh, Indeed. Darren England and Dan Cook, the VAR officials at the centre of this controversy in Liverpool's defeat against Tottenham, of course, uh, they were refereeing in the UAE only 48 hours earlier. That is Paul Joyce's and Martin Ziegler's story that you uh, can read on the Times website now if you haven't seen it already, although I'm sure you have because it was all over social media last night. Lots of angry Liverpool fans saying, see, it's a conspiracy. Useless referees, but you do make a very good point that perhaps this is one of the issues that the people in the rooms making the decisions, pressing the buttons, looking at the footage. Which we and let's be honest, this isn't the first time we've no, seen no, no. we've seen this. Um, Gregor, I mean, what what can we say about this? Well, what, just, what can we say from to take Alison's point about VAR and it being recast? What what would your reaction be to that? I mean, I would I would bend it all together. It. But it's not going to happen. Like, we've said that for a while, so I don't think there's wor- it's worth even having that conversation. But following on from Alison's point, it is, it's almost like the logic as well that footballers, some footballers have or has, have historically had about only footballers, really, you know, people who've played the game knowing what they're talking about. And like I, I hate the I hate that logic, but also like you 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 look at uh, Howard Webb taking up the kind of position of the refereeing the leader of the referee's body like why do we think he's going to be the knight in shining armour because he was a good referee because he's a decent bloke because he's been on Monday Night Football a couple of times Gregor come on he seems like a you know he's a good ref and he seems like a good bloke but but it's it's a different job to 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 kind of overhaul the refereeing uh, standards in in this country and um, and also you know using technology better it's it's the same in, in terms of you know the the VAR operation as, as well. It's like why do we think it should just be referees who are in in the booth? I know you have to know the rules, but I think probably you know a fair like a mastery of the technology and s- sort of understanding or certainly better implementing the, the systems to get to the right decisions is the most important thing. Mm. They don't they, have to be former refs. Yeah, this is this is part of your point that you've always made, Alison. To be fair to you, that. You can bring technology in, but if the if the humans doing the technology are the same as the humans on the pitch, then you're still going to get the same problems, isn't it? Do you what do you think to Gregor's idea of having people in the booths who aren't necessarily referees? They might be have more knowledge of the technology and know the rules, but haven't necessarily been out on the pitch. Do you think that matters? No, you you have someone in the room, an overseer who who knows the intricacies of football laws, which aren't there aren't that many of them really. Well. Very few, very few of them are complicated, and a lot of it is about um, interpretation of the laws, and that's why you have the referee on the pitch going to the monitor. That isn't a perfect system either. But I think the 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 idea that referees who are currently refereeing are then pushed into a room with lots of computer gadgets and expected to 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 work out quickly and efficiently. The, the right thing to do they're not they, that, they weren't it's like somebody doing 
a degree in drama than becoming a surgeon. You, you don't. You go through the pathway, don't you? You don't. Mm. You you do what you're good at. I think it should be. When when you're watching any football game live, uh, whether it's Sky or TNT or whatever, we we take it for granted how brilliantly that's conveyed to us. You know, razor sharp graphics. We see the pictures of everything. We the, every, everyone's identified properly. Subs are made. You get a lovely indication straight away of who's going on, who's coming off. It's all you know, slickly, slickly produced. You go to the studio. You go back to the the match. You have a little shot maybe of the commentator in the stand. It's all done so so slickly. Why can't those people who bring us the TV be also the people that operate the VAR? Because they would do it. They're used to pressure. They're used to knowing that you need to react incredibly quickly. They know what's needed. They understand football because they're bringing it to us almost on a daily basis. Why? Why are the refer refereeing body put in charge of the VAR? They sh I don't think referees, apart from an overseer who knows the laws, should be there at all. Very interesting. Um, to kind of take that point about who's involved and how they've tried to change VAR, Molly, one of the things in the Women's World Cup that we saw was a, a, a desire for added transparency, if you like, uh, referees speaking over a, the kind of tannoy system in the stadiums to try and explain decisions. That was fraught with errors where sometimes they started speaking and the crowd would react to the decision as it came up on the screen so you then couldn't hear the decision. Transparency was a word uh, used in Liverpool's statement last night and it's something that Johnny Northcroft our colleague picked up on uh, social media saying that you know in other sports in cricket you can hear the decision being made and how it's been made in rugby similarly when these decisions are mm. discussed what what was your view in the women's world cup of how that desire, that attempt at transparency went down within football i think f fundamentally the problem with var at the minute is everything you try and do with it creates another problem mm. Um, so as you say, part of particularly my frustration from being in the ground, I'm not 100% sure how it was for you guys listening to it sort of on the TV. But yeah, the the crowd obviously react to what the referee is saying. And also at the World Cup, you had a lot of referees that English wasn't even their first language. but So they're being asked to communicate in English, which then makes it harder for them. It kind of what Alison was just saying about a referee doesn't sign up to be in a small room probably a bit like this um they they also don't sign up to speak to the fans directly through through their microphone you know that's something else that we're putting on them when we're already sort of arguing that maybe referees are getting things wrong well now we're just making their job even harder for them but I think for me going back to Liverpool incident I think the the big thing that sort of opened my eyes and maybe it's because you know I don't spend hours of my week researching this stuff is the communication. I think the communication is the main issue because I was reading um, Peter Walton's column for us this morning and he was saying part of the problem where the confusion came from the VAR official not realising the on-field decision, you can't actually say goal or no goal because there's a chance you could miss the no <laughs> at the start and misinterpret it. And now that's basically exactly what's happened, that he's misinterpreted that even without that. So, like, how do you make that system foolproof? Mm. Because it's supposed to be a yes or a no decision, you're either onside or offside. 
which I think is the things about VR that has actually worked. I, I don't particularly like it when it's a subjective thing, when it's down to interpretation, because we can still sit here for an hour every Absolutely, Monday yeah. and argue it. But, I'm going to try not to, I promise. But yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, that's that's kind of like, if there's still room for error, then what is the point? Imagine the dread of these guys when, mm. when they realised what they'd done. And also the you know the referee as well it must have it must have influenced the way he officiated the rest of the rest of the game. Yeah. I mean, it's they would have just been sitting with their heads in their hands thinking how how has this possibly happened? And it's such a such a bad look. Mm. It's you know we we talk about the sort of the standard of the Premier League and you know being the best best league in the world and everything. It's, it's such a bad look yeah. to, for for officiating standards to be so low and shambolic at times this season well that's a big big topic of conversation amongst um, our writers on the times website this morning forget technology better humans are needed howard webb needs to find them says martin samuel pay more and recruit ex-pros how to fix the referee shambles says henry winter gregor tempted <laughs> i reckon you probably get more money than we pay you to do this so that'd be a start no i mean you know there was a line in martin i read martin's column this morning there's a line that leapt out to me and it was it cannot be that every everybody who played the game doesn't know the rules. Well, Alison, you're saying the rules are simple. I completely disagree. I think the rules need need overhauled as well because some some of them are so complicated and convoluted. And also, not that's not even the most important thing. It's also that players look at a lot of decisions now and think and disagree with them. Hmm. And I know it's not just you know it's not just former players or current players who should decide what's right and wrong but when so many people say look at for example Curtis Jones red card yeah. and say that 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 was a that was a that was a kind of a, In my a day, mistake that it happened. was yeah, yeah. yeah but you no know, no that sounds old fashioned but it's his foot rolled off the top of the ball and i know i, I know there's there's been a kind of gradual shift towards like the, it almost doesn't matter how your studs are planted on the player's leg you know you could win the ball first and plant your studs in the player's leg and still be sent off these days. But people are shouting, thinking this is not right. This isn't. This isn't. You can't play football and not try and compete to win the ball and be competitive and and strong in a challenge. Sometimes. So I think Martin's fundamental point there is the rules are wrong. If if so many players and current and former players think they're wrong. Yeah, but just to back back to that point, we talked um, on last week's show about coaching and your decisions after your career. And you know how that is quite often like a reflex for a lot of former players. I presume there's ev- never really any chat in the dressing room, you know, amongst the, the lads in their thirties. Oh, I'm going to give referee in a crack. No, I know, I, I know, I know one one former teammate who played, uh, who I played with, who, uh, who who did the qualification, but then went into coaching. Uh, the, the the thing I would agree with in, in Henry's is pay them more. If you want to make it a real kind of profession with high standards, like most things, most kind of industries, you need to reward them and I think that would possibly you know uh, be more alluring to players who played in League 1 and League 2 for example who you know you, you see see the opportunity to earn a, a decent living and well, a very good living in mm. fact if you become a, a professional referee Well Molly we mentioned uh, players becoming referees Hawa Sissoko the uh, West Ham defender in the Women's Super League you interviewed her uh, honestly this was one of my favourite stories you've ever rang in and told me about on the editing desk you said right hear me out she's got the most red cards in the Women's Super League guess what she wants to do after she stops playing and I was like I don't know go far far away and forget all about football and you were like no she wants to be a referee 
I mean, that, that's pretty unique, isn't it? Yeah, the, the the best bit of the story um, is that this must have been like a 15, 20 minute interview. We're all huddled around her at this like Women's Super League media day. And she's spent like 14 of these 15 minutes basically saying the, the rest are crap. I'm not aggressive. You know, I've got all these red cards, but uh, it was their fault. It wasn't my fault, which if you actually look at the red cards, I think they were red cards yeah. um, in defense of the officials. Um, and then she, she actually says, I'm going to tell you a secret. I'd like to be a ref. And we're just like, what? Are but you I mad? Think, <laughs> <laughs> but I think fundamentally her point was not only does she want to be a ref, she'd just like to speak to the ref. She feels as though the only times players really speak to officials, and you'll know this better than I, is when you're in a match in the heat of the moment and you probably disagree with what they've just said to you or whatever. And it, it's not a real time to have a proper discussion about the rules the laws whatever um and just more like person to person she was saying like she felt as though that dynamic isn't right and that's why some of those issues come up then on the pitch because maybe she feels as though play she is is seen as an aggressive player when she isn't but basically she was saying we just need to talk more we need to communicate off the pitch we need to understand more i, I don't know if that's something that you think would I, th- I think it would. It. I think it would improve it, but only in terms of when it's coming to to drafting the laws, because the referees have to go by the laws of the game. That's how they have to officiate, which is which is correct. Mm. But uh, I mean, I, on, in terms of discussion on the field of play, I don't think uh, I've said this many times. I don't think players should be allowed to speak to the referee. I think she should just be the captain because it's an awful look when when, when uh, referees are being harangued. But at, at the same time, it's kind of almost understandable now because when you see some of the decisions that are being made this it must be infuriating well there you go game podcast listeners former players becoming referees change the rules and get some people from outside of football to be in the booth with them we tried to come up with some solutions to the problems uh, on the show this morning and not just get angry about it uh, although we are still going to talk about the game so there's chance for Alison Rudd yet um on to the action itself because it was also a thriller again Tottenham and Ange Postacoglu delivering the goods Alison coming to you on Liverpool and let's say the red cards and obviously this controversy comes into it as well how well do you think they kind of handled the kind of fevered nature in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium because that is going to become a thing I think under Postacoglu He's, the crowd are so behind them and the team at the minute obviously that Curtis Jones red card potentially slightly harsh do you think it was a difficult afternoon for Liverpool or really bad luck obviously Joe Mat- Joel Matip sticking one in his own net didn't help but no I I, I... Until that very late <clears throat> own goal, I did feel Liverpool were going to at least escape with a point because there was that sense of well they'd, they'd already done it at St James's Park, which is just as febrile an atmosphere. Yeah, actually. absolutely. And that if you know you can do that, down to ten men and you're away from home, well that 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 gives you something to cling on to. I thought Klopp reacted really quickly and set the team up well so there was a bank of five and then three in front but with all always with the opportunity for a, a counter-attack um, it's hard to I mean and then when you go down to <laughs> Jota gets sent off and you go down to nine that's slightly different to ten actually <laughs> but I, I I mean I'm biased but I did think I did think wow you know Spurs are not making any headway here 
This is this is concentrated defending, which is slightly ironic because it's not the thing Liverpool are good at this season. Um, I do I do feel if they're going to win the title, it'll simply be because they just score more goals per game and let loads in as well, but not quite as many as they score. So I just I just thought, wow, this is this is one hell of an effort. In as you say, Tom, a difficult place to go now, and it was it just felt like. It just felt extra painful that it was an own goal, really. I, I don't blame I don't blame Matip. It's you know he's doing his best, but I I I'd like to think most neutrals watching would have thought I I th- I'd quite like Liverpool not to not to lose this because. Um, Good luck the, with that one. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> there, well, there are neutrals in football. To be fair, Molly was <laughs> nodding along to that point. No, I, I kind of agree. look. I agree. I think Liverpool arguably sort of emerged with more credit than Spurs from this game because, mm. you know, I think Gary Neville mentioned in commentary that it, that it could have been could have ruined the game when that when Curtis Jones was sent off because it was a great opening half an hour. You know, Liverpool had brilliant chances on the break. Spurs were, you know were dominating large spells of possession but maybe not they fashioned one or two openings but Liverpool still looked really threatening on the break and it was beautifully uh, poised and balanced the game but the, the sending off didn't ruin the game Liverpool still managed to offer that threat on the break they still looked solid defensively scored a great goal yeah indeed <laughs> and uh, and even with nine men they kind of they just it was like a training session they defended the box and Spurs kind of kept working around the box and every time they tried to get into the box they met the red wall Um so it was a moment of kind of this huge ill fortune and sort of tiredness swinging a leg at, mm. at, at the ball that, that, that changed the game, that changed the result. But I think Liverpool deserve credit from this. You mentioned ill fortune for Liverpool. I'm going to, you know, and this, 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 this isn't my view, Tottenham fans, before you th- th- take your headphones out and throw your phone across the room. But 2-1 at home to Sheffield United with sendings off Sheffield United and late goals. 2-2 against Arsenal. Now this result as well. Is it this this shows what Ange Postecoglou is doing with Tottenham. They're a big team now. They're going to win big games. They find a way to win, or are they being a bit lucky, Gregor? A bit. No, they have been a bit lucky. Absolutely, they certainly were in this one. In other games, they have shown sort of real uh, fortitude and sort of continued belief. And what he keeps saying about just keeping playing our football has been true. In this game, it wasn't because they kept trying to play their football and it wasn't working. Um, having said all that, in the first half. First half, I was watching this game, thinking, you know, you t- you talk about teams often try and get overloads in wide areas, uh, you know, attacking fullbacks. Sometimes one inverted fullback. I've never. Se- it's hard to think of a team who flood the middle of the pitch as much as Spurs now. With like both <laughs> both fullbacks step in. Sometimes Romero steps out from centre half, and they have a midfield three, and they just kind of constantly try and find ways through. The opposition in the middle of the pitch to to then go wide, and it's you know it's it's it, it worked at times as well in the first half, but I, as I said at the start, I think Liverpool almost deserve more credit from this game despite the result. Molly, finishing with you, first time on the show this season, Tottenham second, Liverpool fourth at the moment. What is your overall assessment of these two teams? Do you, very early to say, but where do you think they're going to be heading towards top four title contenders towards the end of the season? I don't know if this is slightly avoiding the question, but almost I was, certainly, probably. I was I was listening to to you and Gregor then, and it, it reminded me. Obviously, it was in Australia when the 
season actually started and obviously there's a huge interest in Ange coming to the Premier League and all of that and I actually watched the first Spurs game in a pub with a Spurs fan who who was also a reporter who I won't name for her benefit <laughs> um, but it was like they almost felt like the season was like a bit dead already like Ange had been like hamstrung already like Kane was gone you you know when you you turn on the TV at the start of a new season you're like who's that when did they sign him where's he come from and it was like a bit like that with the Spurs team in particular obviously we'd been in Australia for about six weeks at that point so I'm not sure we knew what was was actually going on Um, but it did feel a bit like that and like the first game wasn't amazing I think um, Vicario wasn't great in goal and we just kind of thought this is all a bit rubbish isn't it and then I think you, you, you literally come a matter of weeks down the line and you see how it's been transformed and you say, well, are they actually as good as we think they are? Well, I think a Spurs fan would say, well, it doesn't really matter. We're actually having a good time. Mm. Like, I think you you kind of forget in modern football that aside from maybe the Manchester Cities of this world and, yeah, I guess the Liverpools too recently, that, you know, you, you're always constantly going for winning trophies. But what about the teams that are just below that, that just want to enjoy watching their football team and I know obviously Tottenham have aspirations to to win that elusive trophy but for now can we not just kind of enjoy the ride a little bit um, and I think that's what they're doing I think that's why yes they might not be playing incredible and yeah I, I did think they kind of struggled with against the, the nine players of Liverpool who, who were fantastic but it's kind of fun isn't it it See is where fun. they go. It's certainly fun. And Liverpool are fun as well, scoring lots of goals, as Alison mentioned. Do you think that'll be enough? We'll score more than you? Yeah. But I, but I think it does come it it comes down to the big games, doesn't it? Mm. Because still in our hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's ours to lose. It's ours to lose. Well, another team who would say it's definitely ours to lose is uh, Manchester City, beaten by Wolves uh, at the weekend, two one. Um, Charlotte Dunker in her match report for the uh, Sunday Times said that a City side without Rodri missing through suspension after his slightly ludicrous red card against Nottingham Forest did not look the same and Wolves executed a game plan to a tee which saw them set up with a back five and suffocated City on every occasion. Gregor, a Gary O'Neill masterclass, wasn't it? Kind of, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Poor Gary, he's probably listening thinking this is my big moment, I've beaten Pep Guardiola. (laughs) Well, look, they, they, they repelled everything that City threw at them, which is not as much as yeah, they might have expected, um, and kept Erling Haaland remarkably quiet, uh, which was a big a big thing as well. And Charlotte's right. I mean, she mentioned some stats about how City's sort of win percentage falls falls dramatically without Rodri, mm. um, and he does add that that kind of that that impetus. Although he's the, ba- the man at the base of midfield, he's the one who kind of inject a bit of pace and can 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 play forward quickly um and you just you look at city's team and that you know Kovacic's new Nunes new Doku's new um there's a few you know it's not it's not the kind of familiar winning machine that we were so used to in recent seasons there's there've been quite a few changes uh, over the summer and that creates a bit of sort of uncertainty i would say in their in their team so um, but from Will's point of view, yeah, the, Gary Neal is, is uh, as I said a f- couple of weeks ago. I, th- I think he's he's uh, you know a, a coach with with a really high ceiling. I think you can see when you're watching these his games live uh, the kind of sort of like micro detail, the little details he's sort of 
he's 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 working on on the pit, on the sidelines trying to drag players across kind of little targeted pressing triggers things like that he's he's really he's really on top of things on this on the touchline and there's always a really solid structure that that Wolves start from um and they've they've got players who are who are good in the break like Cunha and and uh, Neto whose pace was was just terrifying for City and for Aki in particular in this game um so brilliant result for Wolves and uh some a bit of a a, a a rubbish week for Man City. Yeah. The key, the key, though, for Wolves, I thought, because I think they've played well without getting the results all season, the key was that they they kept the pressure on for the full match. They've, they've wilted in the final quarter of games as though Gary O'Neill has a plan, and it's a good plan, but they haven't got the energy to see it through to the end, and then they sort of wilt tight. You know, just, you know, but clearly they've been working on their ability to pace themselves and their fitness if they can if they can do what they've been doing and do it for the full I was, I, I'm trying to avoid saying for the full, the 90, full 90 because it doesn't <laughs> exist as a term anymore it's completely meaningless the, for the full 108 minutes um, then they will do really well I think because that's that's been the problem they have been they have been one of I mean we we've banged on on this podcast about you know, Brighton being the team to watch. I think Wolves have not been far behind with their pace on the break. They've been joyous to watch, but they've just not had had it and in goals. them to do the whole. Sometimes they can't yeah, turn those, yeah, those yeah. periods. But if they can into... last, if they can keep that going, the plan going for the full 128 minutes, then then they will they'll be fine, better than fine this season, I think. And what are Bournemouth thinking, having decided? Well, exactly. Too, he was just too boring for them. Well, you've teed up perfectly for my next question because Molly Hudson, as we were preparing for this show, she said, make sure you ask me about Gary O'Neill. Bloody love Gary O'Neill. <laughs> Tell us why, Molly. Well, I watched Bournemouth last season, did a few of their games, thought he's doing a perfectly good job here. In fact, he's doing a more than perfectly good job here because a few of us might have thought they were going down and they didn't. They comfortably stayed up, and then they got rid of him. Why? Because he's not fashionable. I hate, I hate to sound like a bit of a dinosaur, but <laughs> it's like fine. you're in your twenties, you can get away with that kind <laughs> exactly, of Exactly right. He's winning games. That, that's the. Well, he wasn't winning games. I mean, that's why they got rid of him because once they were secure in the Premier League, they didn't win. They just didn't win. Which comes back he won to enough that games. Point about your inten- your intensity point, maybe about being able to keep it up. That'll be a challenge then for him this season. If you then that you know you beat Manchester City, having let's be honest, lost lost to Ipswich in the cup, drawn with Luton, lost to Liverpool, lost to Palace, beat Manchester City, great, amazing. Then what are you going to do? That's that is maybe part of it as well in terms of his standing as a manager. Oh, no, absolutely. But I, I have, I have faith in because let's remember he's a new manager. Mm. He's he's not been doing it that long, and he had a lot on his plate when he was promoted to first team coach at Bournemouth. But not least the fact they were a team that had been slaughtered at Anfield, and as you say, Molly, everyone wrote them off. That takes quite a lot of man management skills to convince your team that they're actually good enough to start getting results together and he was only interim too wasn't he and he like speaking to him he was very like measured he never spoke about trying to want to get the job and he got the job by doing his job yeah. do you know what yeah. i mean and that's quite refreshing sometimes we look too far ahead instead of actually going right game by game win this game you're in a better position but do you think that speaks of an i think he probably has quite good self-confidence because He's not changed. He doesn't need the way, to say it. He's not. He's, he's not changed the way he plays at Wolves, even though the results were looking terrible. And but the 
he liked what he saw and knew it had to turn. What's he like in press conferences after matches? Gregor, really Gregor really you measured. did Calm. the recent one. Really measured, even you know, in in victory and in defeat. Um, he did speak up a little bit, I think, in midweek after the defeat to Ipswich, saying that like, you know, we've lost 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 some big players mm. and you know not had much uh, coming the other way. So this is always going to be a difficult campaign, and it will be, you know, it will be inconsistent. The, the, the lack of goals is going to be a recurring issue, I think. Despite Neto's form this season has been outstanding, and you know he came back, I think, from about ten months out, I think, in February last season. Uh, well, yeah, if he gets injured again, ouch. and he's yes. yeah, so he's kind of building up fitness. I think he must have had a good preseason, and he's he's electric. Yeah, um, that run was like a PlayStation goal, wasn't it? Where you're yeah. smashing the like speed button, go 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 go. Yeah. <laughs> so incredible. so with the kind of structure they have, and as as I mentioned the other week, Joao Gomez in, in midfield alongside Lamina, they are two real kind of ankle snapping midfielders who. Uh, you know they rat around and they do all the all the dirty work and provide a platform for Neto and, and Cunha as well, who is another player who's a brilliant ball carrier, but just you know not always uh, clinical enough in front of goal. So I, I, you know, as I said before, I think goals will continue to be an issue for them, but really good kind of foundations for this team though. We need to give a shout out to the Wolves social media team um, with the Korean guy. I don't know if you guys saw it um, in his pre-match press conference. Pep had forgotten the name of Huang Hee-chan and just called him the Korean guy when he was like listing players. Um, literally just forgot his name. Just didn't think, just said the Korean guy. He scores, obviously, the winner and the, the social media team put the graphic of, of the player and then the Korean guy. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a little dig at Pep Guardiola, especially in <laughs> defeat. We've got to keep him honest, haven't we? Um, from one young manager doing very well to one slightly older, Roy Hodgson. <laughs> one nil win for Crystal Palace at Old Trafford. It's about peak as peak Roy Hodgson as you could get, Alison Rudd, wasn't it? Losing uh, in the cup in the week. Man United and Eric Ten Hag are thinking, yes, off we go, here, here we go, our season starts now. Oh no, it doesn't. Along comes Roy with a perfect defensive masterclass. Well, we have a we have a say we have a rule in my living room. The Rudd rule is if you face someone in the cup close to the league game, the results will always be the opposite. Right. So I had no doubt at all <laughs> that Palace would win this. But when I had lunch recently with Roy Hodgson, yes, that epic lunch, um, posh lunch, <laughs> and, and indeed quite posh. Well, actually, I think it was good value, you know. But anyway, <laughs> um, he, I, I said to him, oh, you know, you. you you, as you get t- towards, I mean, he's obviously nowhere near the end of his career because he's only 76, but as he gets towards the end of his career, it would be nice to win silverware in England, which he's not done. And he was he was sort of like, well, not really. I mean, because he was about, at that point, he was about to go to Old Trafford in the EFL Cup. And he said, well, you know, I'm not, I mean, it's a game I have to play my fringe players in, otherwise they'll they'll be cross. They need they need exposure and a chance to prove themselves. And he said, I would much much rather much rather win the league game. Hmm. So he he it wasn't he he wasn't feeling it for the cup game. Yeah. He just wasn't feeling it. He was feeling it for this though. Completely concentrated on how to do it. Obviously, someone who's more than any other manager undefeated in his visits to Old Trafford he feels very comfortable going there and it's almost like a touch of magic because you 
it's not supposed to happen, is it? They seem to score. With, they seem to get these results with wonder goals, and you can't plan for those. There are always wonderful goals, and it was beautifully a taken. Hell it was a of great a goal. strike, wasn't it? But they're I mean, always great strikes, aren't they? They're always great strikes when Crystal Palace get a result away from home at a big club. But it's like, uh, so that, and, and I'm sort of contradicting myself in a way. That can't be the plan to rely on a wonder goal. That should never be the plan. And yet, because it happens so consistently, it's based on. Not being scared, um, not being scared also to be defensive and well organised and to have faith in a variety of players at Palace who we've discussed in the past do have flair and great technical ability and knowing that you will frustrate a club that aren't in peak happiness, really. I mean, there's not much to be scared of when you go to Old Trafford no. these days, though. That's no. the only thing, is it? Manch- Getting rained on. Yes. If you're a fan. <laughs> hey, come on, don't start with. Well, those that was that was telling, wasn't it? Who was the most soaked manager? It was the old guy, prepared to stand in the rain to cajole his team on, and Eric Ten Hag didn't look wet at all. He I spent mean, most of the time sat down looking at a screen. I think Molly's referencing the leaks in the roof, though, aren't yeah. you? There was pictures on social media of that as well. Fans He's got of... enough problems, Eric Ten Hag, without <laughs> picking on him for not being brave enough to stand in the rain. <laughs> Poor guy. Don't you think that's indicative? It, poten- it potentially is. It potentially is. But just quickly on to Palace, because I don't, we've talked so much about Manchester United, and I genuinely do think it's not that surprising a result. So, on, on Palace, my only, my only thing for Hodgson and Palace is with this result, as we say, it is so Roy Hodgson, it is so Crystal Palace, that the last time he was at Crystal Palace, this was a little bit of the, part, almost part of the reason he kind of moved on and the club were happy to move on because they'd had it, not enough of Roy Hodgson and Crystal Palace, but they wanted to try something else. They wanted to try a newer manager, a younger manager in Patrick Vieira. And then they came back to him to save them. Do you see where I'm going? And kind of, how far do you keep going with this before it then becomes, oh, we've kind of used to Roy and his 1-0 wins at Old Trafford and was finishing 16th. What? Because you say about not winning a cup, I want to win the league match. That is embedded, surely, in the idea that he wants to just survive and keep them in the league. So how? how not do- necessarily. I think I think he genuinely feels he's he's done that. Let's finish mid-table or just below and survive with an ageing team. Now he's got a young team with a lot of talent in it and he he is very excited by who is in the team. There is, there's a lot more youth and endeavour and coveted players in that team. And I think he believes he can, he can shift up, shift up the places and that matters to him a lot. Not to, I don't think he wants to become that cliche Tom where, oh, you know, he's a safe pair of hands, but it's a bit boring. The young players, the Elise's, the Eze's are what's keeping him. No, he loves them. Gregor, Crystal Palace then, just finally on you. What what do you think they can be, should be, going forward this season? Or will they just be Roy Hodgson's super goals from Joachim Anderson and (laughs) out of nowhere and wins at Old Trafford and Stamford Bridge and the like? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been fairly consistent in this. (laughs) Uh, I completely get everything Alison's saying and and he's done a remarkable job, continues to, uh, I think they will be kind of happy to survive every year and very little else. I know there's excitement about uh, several young players and and they have got a lot of attack and flair and they can be uh, they can be really good to watch. But I still think fundamentally that by appointing Roy Hodgson, there's a an, an admission that survival is the aim. Nothing wrong with a bit of survival. Uh, 
one club who will be definitely hoping to do more than survive this season but dare I say it at this early stage nothing can be uh, undecided is Chelsea Uh, they play Fulham tonight of course but before that if you're listening to us before that match or even after that match especially if they've lost you will definitely want to check out Tom Roddy and Matt Lawton's story the inside story in fact of what has gone wrong for Chelsea this season those guys take you behind the scenes you can read that story on the Times website now and all the best of the weekend reaction from all of these guys stick with us up next we're talking Luton, Villa and the Women's Super League listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined by Molly Hudson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Gregor Robertson, of course, a former defender. And Tom Lockyer must have scored for Luton Town in their win against Everton, the defender's favourite ever goal, where he's basically scored by blocking a big clearance and it's gone straight into the net. <laughs> I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? I know last week you talked about scoring from a corner, but sliding in in the rain for a hero's block and it actually flies into the top corner, that's as good as it gets, isn't it? Absolutely. They all count. Quickest to react, though, he was, if you look at it. You know, Absolutely. Ashley Young controlled it and kind of on the line and thought he was going to have time to clear it but Lockyer was, Lockyer was zoning in and threw everything he had at it and uh, got an all-important uh, opening goal and, Car- and he's had a black eye since he was four and a half <laughs> <laughs> he's all got a black eye indeed yeah. yes absolutely and of course he recovered from that heart scare during the summer as well so great for him to be scoring in Luton's first win and a great moment for them I should also give a mention to Carlton Morris who I cast aspersions over in our preview show that having seen him in League One he might not be good enough for the Premier League but that's two in two now, and an excellent goal for him as well. This is a big moment for Luton, isn't it, Gregor? Yeah. You know, we've discussed them on um, the show recently in in the light of all three promoted teams. You and Alison had a bit of a debate about what their goals were, what their ambitions were. This is a big this is a big statement from Rob Edwards, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think there've been some. There's been a bit of sneering at Luton already, and you know, it's kind of didn't look at Alison when you said that. that no, was no, no, I don't just. <laughs> I think a lot of people have kind of looked at them and thought, "What did they spend the best about twenty million? I think on players. Uh, you know, the wage bill is still probably. I think it's about thirty million. It's just nothing compared to some of the uh, some of their opponents, and it wouldn't be much in the championship. So people think that they're almost not trying. You know, they're kind of draw, almost drawing parallels with with when Norwich tried to do something." 
prudent financially, shall we say, when they came up a few years back. Um, but Luton are a bit different. Luton, Luton's journey has been extraordinary. And they also, I think also it kind of misread a lot of their performances. There have been a lot of, a lot of their games have lost because of individual errors. I know it's easy to say, you just cut out the errors and you know, you'll start to you'll start to find some results. But it's kind of true. And all, a lot of these guys haven't played in the Premier League uh, and they're still finding their feet and they're getting used to the, the pace. Rob Edwards said it's like a different sport after the, the draw uh, against Wolves last week, which they dominated the shot count, I think it was 20-3, to three, um, and should have won. And they're creating chances, and they've always had. I said I wrote it after the opening game of the season at Brighton, which everyone looked at. I think it was four-one. Uh, I thought, oh, you know, Brighton blown them away. They didn't. Luton were always in that game until like the eighty-fourth minute or fifth minute when it was fun to watch. Was, they weren't getting battered. Absolutely, uh, and they've got a solid structure, and it's the same kind of thing as we we saw in the championship last year. And they've got. They were always really good at set pieces, and that's you know that's been an area that Rob Edwards has said on a couple of occasions. We need to make better use of, particularly in this league, and they're starting to do that. Uh, and Alfie Dow- some of Alfie Doughty's deliveries in this game, the left wing backs, were outstanding, and they've got some big guys like Carlton Morris ready to to get on the end of them. So, yeah, I, I look, it's going to be difficult for them, but I I, I always thought it's it's a bit hasty to write them off, and this was a big win for them, absolutely. Everton, Allison. We talk about Wolves and that big win against Manchester City and I was then suggesting, well, you've got to keep it up. Everton, big win against Brentford last week, then winning the Cup against Aston Villa. Bloody hell, they beat Aston Villa. Sean Dyche has turned it around. Oh, no, he hasn't. He's lost at Goodison Park. The fortress that it is Goodison Park. Well, that's the point. It's not a fortress, is it? Exactly. That was going to be my question. We've talked so much about how the importance of Goodison Park, when you're getting beaten at home by little old Luton, that's not a good look, is it? No bad really bad and really worrying and it's a bit topsy-turvy I if I was an Everton fan I would read a lot more into this defeat than the victory over Brentford who were uncharacteristically shocking and I felt in that game Everton almost won in spite of themselves you know it's like it just sort of they couldn't help but win did that and I'm not sure they exactly knew how they did it either and the point is to build and to take some of the positivity back to your home stadium. It is going to be their home stadium for another season and a half at least. And it's decrepit and rubbish, but it's got soul and it's got history and it's got the ability to turn games they don't deserve to win into winning games because it can be uh, it can be a difficult place for the uh, the opposing team. It's it's quite intimate and. Um, quite scary at times actually is partly you think it's going to fall down on top of you <laughs> but it's it's you know it's it's part of the list of things you've got going in your favor if you're a struggling team which Everton are so I think it's I don't think you can sort of like balance the books and say ah well we got a good away win but so it doesn't matter so much that we we lost at home it was it was a, a game they were supposed to win and probably that is part of the problem Everton have over the past couple of seasons just got just got that slight un- unlikely result that sense of them all coming together in spite of the flaws and the problems at the club they're able to summon pride when it comes to a big match or a match against a team that are doing much better than them 
And if they can't do that against a team they're supposed to d defeat, I'm not. I'm not saying Luton are just awful. I'm saying in terms of you know the financials and the history, and the fact that Everton have been in the Premier League forever and Luton have not. You're supposed to win it, and if you can't find a way, and not only that, but as you find the game is is unraveling slightly, you're not not able to come together and make it work. You know, pull, you pull your socks up halfway through. You know. Um, I think Paul Joyce used the word limp. Pretty sure he did. Um, it, it, you've got to, you've just got to be better as a unit. And and if if you're gonna not be able to lift yourselves for, for the games against the clubs that are around you in the table, then 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 I think that's sort of slightly doom laden, really. Well, teams around you in the table, they face Bournemouth at home next, and maybe we're suggesting that Sean Dyche has actually decided they they're better away from home. Anfield next as the next away game for Everton so it's a difficult two weeks they're going to need to turn it around um, we're going to talk about Villa and I'm not sure quite what the question should be 6-1 <laughs> against Brighton I go back as I often have done in recent shows to our preview show and we kind of cast these two teams together mm. exciting everyone else's favourite team mm. I mean Unai Emery and Aston Villa are blowing Brighton out of the water on this one aren't they particularly in recent weeks um, Gregor you've talked a lot about the kind of talent the exciting attacking play that Unai Emery's got in his team throughout his career he's known as being solid winning European trophies with teams like Sevilla by being very solid hard to beat Villa are an incredibly exciting team to watch aren't they? Yeah I mean there was a kind of combination of both of those things there was the not really playing Brighton at their own game or being sucked into to, you know as Brighton try and draw, draw you in to, to exploit spaces in behind they, they, they didn't play that game and they chose the times to to go and press or to capitalise on an error and flooded bodies forward and as I've said a few times they've got so much pace now when they do that with Diaby and Watkins uh, Zaniolo as well on the left um, and Watkins was pretty clinical, I mean Brighton did gift them a couple of goals here, there were some really bad mistakes uh, but Watkins was, was really cl uh, clinical um, and it was interesting actually in, in uh, Paul Rowan's piece today he was saying about how Watkins has been watching Haaland and mm. how he's kind of been impressed by his, his patience how he can go we've said so many times in this, this podcast he hardly does anything for like half an hour at a time and he was saying it's, he's been kind of amazed that he can go for you know 20 minutes or whatever without really touching the ball but still being alert and on you know ready to to explode into action when he when he's needed and that's kind of there have been there are periods in games where he has to do that for Villa because they do they do sometimes depending on the opposition they do sometimes sit in a fairly low block and and it's all about picking the right moments to 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 press and to break. He does look like a player who is re who has and does really work at his game as well. And I also thought it was telling for the last goal that he's cleaned through, had a hat trick, hits it kind of straight at the keeper. And as the goal's gone in, is it Douglas Louise who kind of passes it into the net? He's kind of Watkins isn't celebrating. He's beating the floor. He's going, <laughs> damn it! I could have had another one, which would have been great for me because I kept him in my fantasy football team. How good do you think he is slash can be? You know, he's talking about watching other players. He's talking about working on it's, himself. It's all about consistency with him. He, he is he is a hell of a player. He's got everything. He's got explosive pace, strength. Uh, you know, he's got a trick. He can he can score. He can make a goal for himself. He's not just a finisher, hmm. but he is a finisher as well. It's just about doing it over a consistent period and and like. You know, for a couple of seasons, really, in a row for in the Premier. League. Actually, you know, he's, they're talking about he's 
you know he's there, he's in talks with, over a new contract. Um, it would be interesting to kind of think who might kind of be have their interest piqued by this if he doesn't sign a deal and what what the next step could potentially be for him. I don't Probably want to, Chelsea the way they go. On. Well, I mean, if he scores another hat trick, then it'd be go. terrible as soon yeah. as he went there. Yeah. Well, I think there'd be a lot of teams in the Premier League with one an Ollie Watkins, absolutely. Uh, and he's 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 confident too. You see, his quotes were quite punchy after the game about you know well Gareth Southgate was obviously there watching the game and he's saying you know people said you know because he scored a hat trick against Hibs and they were saying oh, it's only against Hibs. He's mm. like, this won't be my last hat trick of the season either. And there's not I've scored against a, a top five team. What more can I do? Just on Brighton, Alison, again, going back to that preview show, you were very excited about their season, said don't worry about Europe, don't worry, they'll they'll just be it'll be brilliant. Since that high those high points uh, of beating Newcastle and Manchester United three one, lost to AEK Athens, beat beat Bournemouth um at home, even conceded a goal against Chelsea in the cup, which is basically the worst thing you could do in football at the minute, and then lost this game. I mean six one, you know, we talked recently about Newcastle and eight nils. 6-1, it's not a great look. Any worries about Brighton, your beloved second team, Brighton? They're not there. They're, they're Gregor's beloved second team. They're a lo- I mean, let's not go down that road. I have, a, <laughs> I have a lot of beloved second teams. Brighton, just about scrape onto the list, really. They are, they are. When they're good, they're very, very good. And when they're bad, they're horrid. And I think De Zerbi is... I think he's a very... Um, meticulous and stroke emotional manager at the same time and sometimes one of those wins and I think he over rotates I think he's getting used to balancing increase um, matches you know basically if you're going to rotate a lot on the back of having lost some of your best players there will be games where it just doesn't click I think that's an acceptable thing to have happened to them actually I mean 6-1 isn't great but it's when it fails it fails may as well it could be 2-1 so it doesn't matter because I think they will they will keep bouncing you sound back. like Paul Heckingbottom now doesn't matter it's just a defeat <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in the company of Paul Heckingbottom <laughs> as he said that's probably why but um, I don't think I don't think this is indicative of a oh it's all gone wrong for Brighton I think we will see them win against someone they shouldn't win against quite handsomely and everyone will be drooling over them again. It's going to be that sort of season because they're just getting used to it's their first ever in their history European campaign and they have lost some key players and they are integrating a whole variety of different players with different experience. So it's going to to collapse occasionally. You talk very quickly about beating teams and we was getting excited. I mean this is a run of four fixtures. Marseille away uh, Liverpool at home, Manchester City away, Ajax at home. I mean, Ouch. if if they pull up a win in one of those, you'll be absolutely right. But it is incredibly exciting, isn't it, for Brighton? Gr- yeah. Sorry, Gregor, you were just going to come back to on Alison's point. No, no, I mean, I would, it's, it, it's about maintaining the positivity because there was almost a feeling of invincibility yeah. about Brighton towards the end of last season and, and at the start of this season, let's be honest. So um, that's quite fragile. And... You know, it's about maintaining. I agree about the Zerbi's sort of uh, emotional side as well. I've often, you know, watched Brighton a lot, and I think this guy is the real deal. He could go to the very top, like as a manager, because he's he's innov- innovative, he's intense, he's like he's all the all the things that uh, an elite manager is. But he's he's a little bit reckless, mm. and you know, he's had a, had a, had a couple of touchline bans, I think. Um, you see how emotional he is in the touchline, 
but I just wonder whether sometimes it might stray a bit too far. So I, I think it is about keeping, you know, keeping the positivity of Brian just now. It's not a disaster for them, and it is to be expected. Too just, too soon to extrapolate anything from seven games in the Premier League. You ain't seen nothing yet, Gregor, because we're moving on to the Women's Super League. First match of the season. Who's going to win the league? Who's going to go down? And what are the stories <laughs> going to be? Molly Hudson. <laughs> Looking at me like, honestly, you are an idiot sometimes, honestly. Uh, but no, the Women's Super League is back this yes. weekend. Um, the big game, Arsenal v Liverpool. Packed Emirates and Liverpool go and spring the surprise of the weekend. 1-0 win for them. Yeah, I I, I kind of introed on the fact that Arsenal got the record. I think it was 54,115. Um, new Women's Super League record attendance. Amazing. Everything off the pitch at Arsenal is going really well. They've got their marketing spot on. There's a really good vibe around the club. Um, the People are paying to come and watch the team. Great. Can you win now? Mm. Uh, it's kind of the problem, I think. Um, uh, the, the background to this, which a lot of listeners might have missed. I mean, frankly... I don't blame you. Um, 20 days after the World Cup final, they were already out of the Champions League because they had to go through this ridiculously convoluted, difficult pre-qualifying phase. So that's already like one of your major competitions out. And it's also something that really captures the imagination of the fans. One of their very best moments last season was when they sold out the Emirates for the Champions League semi-final against Wolfsburg. You aren't going to get one of them this year because no. you aren't in it. And of course, in that match, just fell short again. So you get your big moment in the spotlight, you get the fans in, and you just fall that bit, little bit short, and you lose that momentum. Yeah, so I, I think it is. I think it's that fear of that momentum losing. I mean, it, it, it is ridiculous that we say right they've they've lost one game. To actually, we shouldn't downplay the Liverpool team. I think I counted they were missing seven players. They'd had like a mini COVID outbreak. They'd had injuries um, and they performed brilliantly like Arsenal had something crazy like 19 corners but that's kind of all they had they really limited Arsenal to, to out wide crosses and they backed themselves to defend that's what Matt, Matt Beard said after the game they, they backed themselves to to not concede and that's exactly what they did um, it seems ridiculous to talk about pressure on a manager and, and sort of slightly not a crisis that is a that's a bit too hyperbolic but we're not far off see I knew you could do it I said I said there was only one game and you needed to extrapolate a big storyline and you're about to say it's all over for Jonas Arneveld but (laughs) but genuinely Chelsea dropped eight points in the entirety of the Women's Super League campaign last season Arsenal have already dropped three so now you only have five to play with in your next however many games 21 21 the math is not math in this morning um so you're already you are already under pressure. There's there's no yeah, he, he knows that. He he said, Look, there's there's nobody putting more pressure on me than than myself to, to get these wins and he, he he called for patience for the fans that had turned up, you know, obviously when you get that many fans you, you wanna put on a good show, you wanna get them to come back. I think they will anyway, to be honest, because it's just a nice atmosphere at women's game. Um obviously they you know, enjoyed it regardless, but you wanna be winning the games and they're playing Manchester United. On Friday, I'll be there at Lee Sports Village. Um, not quite the Emirates, but um, if they then lose that game, it's suddenly like disaster. Mm. Two games into a season. Right, we'll see what the future holds for Ar- uh, Ar- Arsenal. Um, but not wanting to make too many big judgments after the opening weekend, I want to talk about the women's game broadly. 
Obviously, we're just fresh from a World Cup and England reaching the final, which followed hot on the heels of a triumph in the Euros. And we're always talking, aren't we? How how do we grow the women's game? What's the next step for the women's game? And you mentioned there the Emirates and the big the big crowd, fifty four thousand. Gregor, you were at Chelsea, where there was fourteen thousand. And Emma Hayes had some views on the, that that idea of growing the game, getting fans in, and the cost of tickets as well. Um, because Molly, you know, a lot of these these um, games and pushes, these promotional pushes to get uh, people in the stands, come with cheaper tickets offers for, um, for young for younger kids, which is great. But Emma Hayes, Gregor, had some views on that going forward and the sust- sustainability of it. Yeah, I mean, just for context, the the same game uh, last I think it was last November against Spurs, which is the last time they played the WSL game at Stamford Bridge. There were thirty eight thousand fans there. So we were all kind of scratching our head a little bit afterwards, thinking, why why is it dropped off so dramatically? And there are some unique sort of circumstances in in, uh, in WSL games. There's younger demographic, Sunday night, sorry, Sunday evening game. Some people might have been dissuaded from that. Um, but it's a big drop, and there had been a, a, an uplift in, in, in ticket prices. It's pretty marginal. I mean, more, most of the, the issues that were sort of complaints by um the Chelsea Women's Supporters Group about about the concession uh, arising concession prices at Kingsmead ordinarily. But they they rose about two or three quid from last season generally. There was also a a, a new kind of fifty pound ticket which people sort of raised their eyebrows at. But You were also talking last, about but, the timing issue as well, potentially the game being a bit later, maybe yeah. getting parents getting kids yeah, in yeah, on yeah. a Sunday night before yeah. school. But the 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 thing that I mean Emma has Emma has said last year that we need to put a value on this, basically, and she doubled down on that before the game when when it was the question was put to her, and she said it again afterwards. She was like, "I think twelve pound, which is the minimum price uh, for elite level football, is is fair." And I realise we're in a, a cost of living crisis, um, but we need. It's, it's, she was saying it's like it's going to be a learning curve. We need to figure out, but you know, the balance between getting people in and getting you know drawing people to 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 games so that they'll come again. And putting a value on it because they're also loss making. She said it costs three hundred thousand pounds to open the stadium, and they need to they need to earn some of that back. So, it's it's, a, it's as Molly knows better than anyone. It's a game. It's a kind of question that that, that women's football has been wrestling with for quite some time. And this was sort of maybe, although it's it was still a head scratcher. <laughs> still, we we talked beforehand. We were still not entirely sure why it was such a, a big drop off. But it was also a game on the TV. But you know, it's still. Um, it's still a question going forward that that people don't really have any answers to. Having just said my math wasn't mathing this morning, I'm now going to do some math. Do it. So Emma Hayes' argument was that at £12 for Chelsea, that was the right price point, which is a little bit more expensive, not much, as Gregor said. I think part of it, (laughs) I saw lots of screenshots of these £50 tickets on Twitter, or X or whatever we're Mm. calling it. Um, I think that put people off yeah i think people didn't actually go and look for tickets because they thought all of the tickets were 50 pound yeah part of it is kind of like the perception and also you have to admit although it's we're talking about the men's game chelsea also scrapped the subsidized coach travel this summer and you know as they've just continued to to take their transfer spend over over a billion pounds so the whole kind of new ownership uh, you know, hovering and <laughs> hovering above Stamford Bridge, that is a bit of a cloud now, and that might have been another sort of factor in dissuading people. What's yeah. the um, what's the general view on 
playing matches at the men's stadium, if you like, getting a balance right. So that it's not, seems to me it's still like seen as a bit like quirky and a novelty as opposed to a right. And, and how many games per season do you think you should play at the major stadium before it's, well, I mean, would you would Arsenal get that many people if they play twenty games there or ten games there? Yeah, so so Arsenal have um, signed up or guaranteed whatever that they're going to play five league games there this season. Obviously, there's only eleven, if my math is mathing once again. Um, so that's nearly half of your home games that they've guaranteed they're going to play at the Emirates this season. That's that, that sounds about right. To che- me. Chelsea four, but Bristol City and Leicester playing all of them. They've committed to all of them. And that doesn't really work. Leicester City really struggled last season. But Leicester City were also awful last season. So I think that plays a part. And you also have to remember, because of what we all talk about, even for us, a lot of people that listen to this podcast will care about women's football at major tournaments. They'll care about the Lionesses. So people will go and watch the Lionesses because they watch them on TV Mm. in the summer. Lots of Lionesses at Chelsea Arsenal. Not any Lionesses at Mm -hmm. Leicester. So it's harder to sell for clubs further down the league. But um, those five games at the Emirates, uh, they're doing a package where it's five for £50. And it sounds as though those packages have sold really well. So that's £10 a game. So we're not talking massively, you know, away from that £12 figure that Emma Hayes was talking about. So I think that's where she's underplaying it slightly because she's sort of saying, well, it doesn't make a profit. But Arsenal got 54000 there yesterday. Say they're £10 a ticket, which they're not. They're actually more than that in general sale. But say they've all five for £50 just for mm. my poor maths. Easy maths. Yes, yes, that's um, £540,000. Mm. It doesn't cost that much to open the Emirates. Uh, the Arsenal have, have previously said to me, uh, roughly, you need to get over 10000 there to make it work because then obviously once you've got over 10000 you have to open another stand, pay more staff, etc., etc. But Arsenal are making a profit. They were making a profit last season. So I appreciate and completely understand what Emma Hayes is saying. But for me, fill your stadium with cheaper tickets first. Make a good product for the TV. Because I came home from Emirates yesterday. I put the Chelsea game on Sky and I thought, that looks rubbish. There's nobody there. So if you're going to play in big stadiums, fill them. Not saying free tickets because that doesn't work. We all know people don't turn up. But do it cheaper. You've got the established base like Arsenal have now where I would say a lot of those fans yesterday weren't first-time fans. They'd come last season. Then they come again, and you've got the established support base to then increase your prices. Chelsea are doing it. They've increased the prices before they've got the established support base at Stamford Bridge. I understand, for me, that's a completely different argument, increasing it at Kings Meadow, because I think that's absolutely right. They've outgrown Kings Meadow. But... You know, that, and I, I guess to answer your question, Alison, I think that's one of the biggest problems for the women's game moving forward, especially for the big teams, because the little teams aren't quite there yet. But the big teams are outselling their small stadiums mm. and they're not quite ready to play at the big stadiums every week. You're you're going back to the um, Joe Montemoro, the former Arsenal manager, always used to talk about this, this kind of utopia of like a little medium-sized yes. stadium. Yeah, mm-hmm. but here's his reference to that too, I think, yeah. Every, everyone would love one of those. Only well, City, City have got one kind of, haven't they, in yeah. the academy stadium? But that's pretty small, I think. I think in 7, terms of 000. capacity, it's not massive. Yeah, so it's, it's essentially a training stadium, yeah. really. Yeah. But cost is definitely a big thing. I, I spoke to lots of fans before the game, and there were like oh, a family of five there, and this guy was saying like it cost cost them under sixty quid or something to bring the whole family, mm. and 
you know that would be like half the price of a of a one one ticket Single for a for a top level yeah. men's game. That and he's you know so a lot of them are fans of the men's team as well. Um, I, I, but they're also a, <laughs> maybe feel kind of like old as well. Like I, I was speaking to uh, another family and. It, um, you're absolutely right about the, li- the draw of the lionesses. I mean, that's part of the reason I went and see if there's kind of any World Cup effect, which was a bit odd when the, as we're talking about crowds <laughs> dropping. <laughs> but I did speak to people who were there for the first time, and and one girl, Maisie, who's thirteen, she was she was there to see Millie Bright. She or she persuaded her dad to to drive her up from Southampton, go to the players' hotel beforehand, you know, wait outside, get her new strip that she had with Bright on the back and the number four, get that signed. Then come to the our first ever game, and it's because she followed all the players on TikTok, and she yeah. loved Millie Bright. She thought she was, you know, she thought she was a great player, but she's also really funny. So it's like you realise the draw. I keep telling you, TikTok. you, you realise the draw is about the kind of individual personalities and of the lionesses as well. Uh, and I spoke to another quickly, another um, family who, who who met Hannah Hampton uh, on holiday, and they said that she was brilliant. Kids were coming up to her all the time. And she, you know, although she's on holiday, she was totally open with her time and you know answering questions. She was, they said she was brilliant, and they kind of became friends with her. And that, so that's still, I went there thinking, surely the Euros has been has been the thing that's you know given it a real boost, but that that never ends. You know, there's an, another kind of generation who maybe that even a year ago were too young to to really get to grips with that, and seeing the World Cup this year. It's it's all about you know the players are still feel it as part of their job to to sell and grow the game uh, and that journey is never never ending. There you go, game podcast listeners. Three different solutions to the refereeing crisis in the men's Premier League, <laughs> and only one game into the women's Super League, and we've already sorted out the financial future of the women's game. But if you're still not happy, you can get in touch with me on Twitter or email me tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk to make any suggestions around future content or just say why the hell haven't you mentioned my team and we'll try and correct it in the future. Molly Hudson, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robson, thank you for joining me. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss all the latest Champions League action. See you then. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.